We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Fantasy Football Mailbag, a Rotoviz podcast. This is the August 20th episode, and we, as always, are dedicated to answering all of those fantasy football questions. I'm your host, Mike Randall. Please follow me on Twitter at RandallRand. Today, we have one of the icons here in the fantasy football world, J.J. Zacharyson, the editor-in-chief at FanDuel and Number Fire. Of course, you know J.J. I don't have to give you an introduction. He does it all. Amazing work. Late round podcast is fantastic. A must listen. Live the stream. Follow him on Twitter. I'm sure you are at late round QB. JJ, a pleasure to have you back on the road of his mailbag. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for the intro. Really appreciate it. It's good to talk to you again. You are killing it. The late round pod is one of my first listens every single week. You have multiple episodes. You put so much content in there. You bang them out over and over again. Number fire, fan duel. How was the last year with COVID? I'm sure it was a challenge. Hopefully, we're starting to get out of it. How's it going so far with you and your family? Yeah, you know, things are good. We're very lucky uh, thus far that things have been pretty good with the pandemic. Um, you know, we had, I, I had my, my at the time, year and a half old daughter to two and a half year old daughter because she stayed home with us for about a year. So last football season was pretty insane. She's now back in daycare. Um, and so this football season is going to be a little bit different than last football season, just because I'm going to be able to not have her randomly jumping on my lap and, uh, you know, doing toddler things while I'm trying to get work done. But um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, like I said, I, I feel like we're we're lucky uh, with the way things have generally uh, gone with the pandemic. It's just it's not an easy thing uh, as a parent. It's not an easy thing as a human being right now to be going through this. Um, so it's just it's just crazy times, man. But I'm very, very much ready for football to be back. Uh, I mean, football is back already, but, you know, the regular season to be back and for us to have at least some outlet to sort of, you know, get away from reality for a little bit. That's what it is. I was talking to Joe Pizzapi on the Betting Pros podcast yesterday, and we talk about the importance of having that outlet, having something to release from all the tension. Before we start, I'm the father of a daughter as well. I'm just curious, what is the one thing you love? There's many things, but what is one of the best things about having a daughter? Yeah, you know, I only have I only have the one right now, and and it's a girl, so I only have that perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I have a nephew, and I'm around other you know toddler boys and stuff. I feel like girls are just generally a little bit sweeter, which is which is yes. nice. 
Um, but it's also just really cool. I mean, obviously I grew up a boy and uh, had my childhood the way it was. And I, I feel like it's just cool seeing things from sort of that different lens, you know, as she's like playing with different things and, you know, into different things. Like she just loves dress up and stuff like that. And like, I wasn't really into doing the dress up stuff, but you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, experiencing that through that different lens, it's really special. It's really cool. I totally understand the father daughter bond. And then, you know, the, 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 the mommy son bond, I assume is, is a similar one, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool, man. You know, I never, I, I never really thought, you know, what kind of kid am I going to have? But I think that once you have that child, you're just like, I want that kid. You know, I just want that. I don't care what the gender is. I don't care what I just want this child. Um, and that's really how I felt with mine. It's well said. I have a daughter myself. We have that bond that could be arguing in the house, but there's always that special, special bond, which you can lean on for sure. And now we will turn our attention, sir, to why we have you here, which is fantasy football. I want to start looking to your crystal ball. To a tag of Aloha, I think one of the quarterbacks with the largest variation of outcomes this year. People are high on Tua. They feel like last year he was put in an unfair situation, didn't have the practice, wasn't ready. Now he's going to explode. Other people think it's not going to work. Dolphins should have drafted a quarterback. What are they doing with Jalen Waddell? So I'm asking J.J. Zacharyson, where are we a year from now? In August of 2022, what are we saying about Tua Tagovailoa as we head into that fantasy season? I think that we're probably going to say that he's a strong high-end QB2 option. Okay. Uh, that he's someone that uh, might not be quite in that QB1 range because his passing numbers weren't necessarily you know, Tom Brady-esque, Aaron Rodgers-esque that we'll see this season. Maybe he has a little bit more mobility than them, but he doesn't have enough mobility to really catapult him you know, into that like top eight, top nine. Uh, so I, I, I could see him being more of a high-end QB2 option than a QB one option. I think that what Miami's doing though has made a lot of sense. You know, uh, you can look at his his tight window throws last year and say, oh, Tua doesn't mind throwing into tight windows. It's not really his game though. He likes to throw to open receivers. Um, and and the reason why the tight window numbers look the way they do is because look at who he was throwing to. I mean, you have Devontae Parker who's not getting a lot of separation, uh, and you obviously have the Mike Kosicki who's uh, not uh, a wide. You know, he's not a speedy wide out. He's a he's a tight end who plays the slot. Um, and now you're getting two players in Will Fuller and Jalen Waddle who create that separation immensely. And I think that's going to help him a lot. I think it makes sense as to why Miami did what they did. You know, this year from a drafting standpoint, have I targeted him? Have I targeted Tua aggressively? Not necessarily only because I like going after either like a Ryan Tannehill, who's not that much more expensive, or I'm just dropping and going with a when they were a little bit more cost friendly, Justin Fields and Trey Lance, um, who are now still sort of in that range. So you know, it's just one of those things where he's just in a spot in the draft where I don't necessarily take a quarterback there because of what's around him. But I still like Tua because of the reasons that I just talked about. You know, talk with TJ Hernandez last week. Where are you on the Kyle Pitts debate? Because you touched on this in your podcast. People want to hear, JJ, that you're really high on a player, that you think a low round pick is going to be a, a top 12 selection at their position, or that there's going to be a complete bust, that a top end player is going to absolutely flame out. That is not the case with most of these players. We're talking about some slight differences, and Kyle Pitts is right there. I think he's very safe. He's obviously going to be a focal point in the Falcons offense. I just don't know, and TJ agreed, if we can get to tight end four with him because I feel like if he gets tight end seven or tight end eight, it's a little bit of a disappointment. But where are you on Kyle Pitts this year in Atlanta? Yeah, you know, I think that that's always a criticism that people have, especially with my analysis, honestly. It's that I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a very – I try to take a very realistic approach, and I'm not going to lie to people and say, oh, I'm really, really into this guy when I'm not really, really into that guy. 
uh, or vice versa. So with Kyle Pitts, I'm basically valuing him the way that he's been valued generally. There's going to be some drafts where obviously you're going to see some some people who absolutely adore Kyle Pitts and reach a little bit. Um, but I'll say this about him. I'm definitely not on the side that looks at historical tight end numbers and says, Kyle Pitts is someone that you should avoid because tight ends in history have not done X, Y, and Z. Okay. And, and the main reason for that is I, I just don't think he's going to be playing tight end the way that uh, players have played tight end historically. And then not only that, you're on a team where they should be close to the top of the league in pass attempts this year, just given game script. I know they have a different offense coordinator or different uh, coaching staff in general. Uh, and so they might approach their offense a little bit differently, but you know, pass to pass rates and pass to rush ratios are generally guided uh, by uh, game script and game flow. And Atlanta's defense is still very bad. Um, and so I'm expecting them to still be pretty pass heavy because they're going to be playing from behind a good bit. So uh, Kyle Pitts being the second best option on, in that passing attack and a pass heavy scheme, I still have my tight end four. Uh, am I drafting him aggressively? No. Do I think that Mark Andrews or TJ Hawkinson are probably better values? Probably. You know, I'd probably going to end up more with them than Pitts this year. Uh, but am I stash? Am I am I going after Pitts aggressively in Dynasty? Yeah, I have him everywhere in Dynasty. Yeah, absolutely. I think in Dynasty he's a slam. He really could be a guy we look back on. He's the overall tight end one in a few years, especially when Kelsey leaves, etc. Right now, you talked about this on your pod as well. It is very important because we we are getting the casual drafters. We're getting the home league people. We're getting the college buddies who may not be into this year round entering the picture. So what's key differences here between best ball drafting, which a lot of us have been doing for several months, and now coming into the seasonal home leagues? What uh, recommendations do you have for people who are now transitioning in that they may have to sort of vary their approach as you get into those typical seasons? in leagues. Yeah, look, I mean, ADP is just all over the place, depending on the platform that you're playing on. Uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think it's a thing that we need to be cognizant of. You know, uh, if you're, if you've been doing best ball drafts since, uh, you know, March or April, you have to recognize the kind of people who are doing best ball drafts in March and April. They're not the casual players. They're not the people who are only looking at fantasy football information at the end of July and into August. These are degenerate players. I mean, these are players who are very, very into this stuff. They're hardcore players. Uh, and as a result of that, the ADPs that we're going to see in best ball leagues is just naturally going to be sharper than the ADPs that we're going to see elsewhere. And I think that we can say that objectively, because if you look at some of the bigger platforms, whether it's ESPN, whether it's Yahoo, they're just like obvious guys that you can pick out. I mean, like Trey Sermon right now on ESPN is like an afterthought, right? But, but in a, in, 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 you know, that's another thing, too, is that I, I've talked about the ambiguous RB1 theory this offseason, which essentially sh states that if you have two running backs that are being drafted between round six through nine from the same team, generally, almost always, actually, the RB1 on that team, the one who's being drafted first, pans out at a much higher rate than the RB2. Now, obviously, when you get lots of different sources of ADP, those players could hypothetically switch. And so there's a lot of platforms that have Raheem Mostert ahead of Trey Sermon. Excellent. Point. Uh, whereas, whereas other platforms have Trey Sermon ahead of Raheem Mostert. And so people are like, well, which one should I target? And so I, you know, the way that I'm going about it is I'm just sourcing from the same place that I did that entire study from, uh, because then it'll, it'll be consistent that way. And it says to go after Trey Sermon instead of Raheem Mostert. But, um, you know, it's just it's just one of those things where if you're utilizing historical ADP and you're trying to equate it to drafts that are happening this year, make sure that you know where you're sourcing that ADP and where you're applying that ADP, because numbers are just drastically different across these platforms, because we're just seeing 
more and more games being created, more and more platforms out there and businesses that are starting around best ball, around dynasty, around whatever. Um, and so that's just naturally going to shift things uh, throughout the market. Is a great call. Your work on the ambiguous back of field. Last year, I remember I was outside raking, cleaning my backyard, and I just stopped. You went into the Rams backfield last year on one of your pods, and I just thought you nailed it. I mean, the advice you gave was just fantastic. We're going to get into those later, but really critical thoughts there, folks, from JJ. Let's try a different question. Salt or no salt when you have a margarita? You got to go You got to go with salt. You got to add some salt to that, Mark. Yeah. That has been the dominant response, but there are some people who don't want to mess up the, the flavor of the margarita, but I say more flavor is better. Thank yeah, you. That's right. Yeah. I've received a ton of questions about Superflex Draft. Just did the Flex Leagues Draft with Jake Seeley in New York this past weekend. People have been asking me about picking at the back end of round one. They're saying, look, quarterback, running back, they're all going early. I'm now stuck in this no man's land where I could actually double tap wide receiver if it's PPR, but then I'm going to have to really wait for a quarterback. But is that a bad thing with players like you mentioned, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, possibly available in round three and four? So question, how long do you wait at the back end of round one? Or do you still say, look, I got to come out of there with a quarterback? Yeah. So, you know, this is obviously you can go. I mean, I could talk about this for like 45 minutes, probably. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's just it's one of those things where this whole offseason I've done a lot of shows and talked about how the quarterback position is changing in fantasy football. I talked about it la- entering last year, too. It just seemed like we had a very efficient market at the quarterback position where people were finally valuing the rushing component the way they should value it. And then last year, what we ended up seeing was that these quarterbacks did really separate themselves from the pack, did actually give teams a pretty significant edge. Um, And as a result of that, you know, this year we're seeing quarterback ADP slightly higher. You know, it's not like what we saw in like 2012 or 2013 or anything like that, but quarterback ADP is slightly higher as a result. And, you know, that makes sense, you know, intuitively because we're seeing that separation with rushing, that all makes sense. And I think that the quarterback market is efficient once again this year. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see ADP versus postseason result that correlation be stronger than what we've seen in years past. And we saw that last season, the, the R squared between uh, of top 24 quarterbacks when you're looking at ADP versus postseason result, it was way, way stronger uh, than what we had seen in like 2015, 2016. In 2015 through 2017, there was basically no correlation between top 24 quarterbacks and where they were drafted That's and right. how many fantasy yes. points they scored. Whereas now we're seeing that correlation, which means those elite guys do matter. And so from a super flex standpoint, those are the guys I only care about, right? Like once you get into like high end QB two range, I actually say this in my podcast that's coming out tomorrow, but uh, there's like, there's like 10 or 12 guys that could finish as QB 14 this year, right? There's just a lot of guys who can finish there. So call, I'm not call gonna, it JJ, the Matt Ryan area, yeah, right? right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's like Matt Ryan and Kirk cousins and even like, I mean, hypothetically like a Baker Mayfield or Trevor Lawrence and a Joe Burr. I mean, there's just so many quarterbacks in that range that could, that could just finish there and some that you can get pretty late too. Um, but the, the thing is, is that I, I'm, I'm still focused on those elite quarterbacks. I still think those elite quarterbacks are important. And those are the only ones that I care about. Once you get into the pocket passers, once you get into those, those high end QB twos, there's no reason to reach for a player like that. So if you're in the first round, I do think it makes sense to go quarterback. If you're in a position to not get one of the elite running backs, um, I, I would, I would opt to go with an elite quarterback over some of those wide receivers, the, the high end wide receivers. If you want to start quarterback and then go wide receiver, cause you're still going to get a guy from that top tier more than likely, whether it's DeAndre Hopkins or Calvin Ridley, what have you, um, you know, I, I still think that's a good start as well. But we do have to keep in mind, I, I think at least that there is separation right now at the quarterback position at the top 
eventually we're not going to have that that separation i think as we get more and more passers that are mobile that are dual threat coming from college and entering the league eventually we're going to have you know 12 13 quarterbacks that have true qb1 overall ceilings and i you know we, we might see that sooner rather than later given this draft class who knows but um you know this season going into it i do think it's pretty safe and smart uh, to go with an elite quarterback early in a super flex league. So here's a follow-up. Is Ryan Tannehill in that elite area for you this year? Yeah, so it's interesting because I love Tannehill. You know, I have my QB8. I actually like him more than Rodgers this year. Um, and wow. so and so I, I think that it's fine if you want to try to get Tannehill. I, but to me, I think Tannehill's more of like a round two, three turn super flex guy as opposed to someone that you would need to get in the first or something like that. So I would still be taking some of those elite wide receivers, obviously the elite running backs over a guy like Tannehill. Um, But yeah, I do think that there's the other thing too, with the quarterback position this year, I feel like there's like more tiers, you know, typically it's just been like, here's the top tier guys. Here's a bunch of middle round guys that we don't need to worry about. And then we're just going after the late round picks. But this year it's like, okay, we have this, this cluster of six quarterbacks that, that we all generally think could be QB ones in fantasy football, maybe five if you don't want to include Russell Wilson. And then you start to get into like the Tannehill, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Justin Herbert range. And then Jalen Hurts is like in his own. There's just a lot of tiers and ways that you can go about the quarterback position, which I love because it it allows for a lot more strategy. Um, But as a result of that, you know, you don't have to feel so, so forced in some of these super flex formats because there are different tiers to choose from. Where are you on breakout players this year? You have two guys in mind that you think could really move forward. Uh, my reference for this is last year, you know, Stefan Diggs, Josh Allen, they were going middle round players and they exploded. So either middle round guys who you think could end up at the top of their position or late round guys that you think could come on maybe second half of the year. You have a couple breakout players? Yeah, you know, I think this one, they're both fairly popular, I'd say, but one of them is Jerry Judy. Um, yes. You know, over the last like two months, I've really, really gotten into Judy. Um, you know, I, from a dynasty perspective, it's always sort of been there, but uh, from a redraft perspective, I'm even into it. Uh, so I, I did a, a study on breakout wide receivers and found some criteria that uh, breakout wide receivers who drafted in uh, after round five um, generally share. And so what I'm looking at is wide receivers drafted after round five. So pick 61 um, after that. And then they also are exceeding ADP expectation by a hundred or more points. Um, and so ADP expectation is going to vary depending on the formula that you're using, but I'm just using the formula that I've created. Uh, what I found was that breakout wide receivers, number one, they typically don't come from nowhere. They typically have some sort of target share backbone the year before they broke out. Jerry Judy checks that box. He had a 21% target share. Breakout wide receivers don't have top quarterbacks throwing them the ball. So you don't have to worry about uh, the quarterback situation in Denver all that much for a guy like Judy. Breakout, I think that the average uh, quarterback, by the way, uh, by ADP among breakout wide receivers was QB 19. So it was really pretty irrelevant. Wow. Uh, okay. break, break, breakout wide receivers typically come from ambiguous wide receiver situations, uh, which, so, you know, the Broncos don't have a clear top pass catcher um, by ADP. Uh, but they, the other thing to, to add to this ambiguous wide receiver situation is that in an ideal world, you have a higher hit rate when a mid range middle round wide receiver doesn't have pass catchers being drafted around him from his team. And so, you know, a good example of that's like Devontae Smith this year, right? He's just kind of standalone wide receiver sitting there for the Eagles. No other Eagles being drafted close to him uh, at the wide receiver position. And so Jerry Judy does have Cortland Sutton, but overall it's still an ambiguous wide receiver group in Denver. Um, we also find that uh, breakout wide receivers have a higher hit rate when they're the first wide receiver drafted from their team. Jerry Judy now has has catapulted and jumped ahead 
of Cortland Sutton in ADP. So he checks that box now. Similar to the um, running backs you talked about earlier. Same thing. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. You know, we're better. We're better at predicting, you know, who's going to be the top player from their teams than we think by by ADP. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is that uh, we have an increased hit rate uh, when wide receivers are second year wide receivers. And that's Jerry Judy. So he he really fits a lot of this criteria that I laid out. You know, he's a top ranked prospect in a class last year that was filled with really good wide receivers. Uh, he had a top 25 target share among all NFL wideouts as a rookie. He finished last season uh, with the sixth most air yards in the league. So I, I just think there's a lot to like about Jerry Judy, not the situation so much. I understand that, but uh, you know, he's not being drafted in a place where you have to worry about that situation all that much. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the other guy that I, I'll throw out there is Travis Etienne. Um, yes. You know, a lot of people are sort of getting uh, anxious and, and stressed about ETN after uh, the usage in that Jacksonville backfield uh, that, that we saw, uh, you know, in preseason week one. ETN, though, incredible pass catcher. Uh, he has first round draft capital, which historically over the last 10 years, we've seen uh, guys with first round draft capital typically see, you know, 200 plus carries on the ground uh, and then also have at least like an eight ish percent target share. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at a situation where he's probably going to see work regardless, maybe not as much on the ground like other running backs who have been drafted in the first round, but certainly through the air, I think we should feel good about. Um, and then you can look at uh, the things that I look at for uh, finding uh, these middle round, although he's rising a little bit, but these middle round running backs who hit, they're typically pass catchers. They're typically the RB ones in their team. And then Travis Etienne fits the ambiguous RB one theory, which is basically saying that he's the RB one from his own team. And then also in those middle rounds is the RB2 from that team, which is James Robinson. And so uh, he he really, I, I think, is someone who's probably going to maybe not give you RB1 numbers right off the, right out of the gate and right off the bat. But it wouldn't shock me at all in a PPR format down the stretch if he's like a low-end RB1 uh, in fantasy. Yeah, we could be looking at Travis Etienne becoming James White later in the year. And in your home leagues, we talked about earlier with your buddies, you could maybe trade for him if someone gets itchy and doesn't get off to a good start. I love the call with Judy. I know it's preseason, but week one, something I liked. They got to the goal line. They put Judy out one-on-one and tried to hit him on a slant for a touchdown. That was one of their earlier plays there with Drew Locke. Just shows me a little window maybe into the fact that they realize he could take that next step. For sure. Question here. Chris in Seattle loves the mailbag and the awesome guests like JJ. Thank you. With Brian Schottenheimer out as OC and Shane Waldron now in, what does JJ see for our offense? I feel like our NFC West identity has always been defense supported by a rushing attack, Russ saving us when needed. This year, I feel like we could finally optimize our offensive abilities. Curious what JJ thinks about Russ, Lockett, DK, Carson. I'm bullish on all of them, but tell me, am I setting myself up to be disappointed again? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So uh, I am very bullish on them as well. Uh, I, I love the Seattle passing attack this year. Russell Wilson and Tyler Lockett in particular, uh, I think are really, really good values. I, I've been taking Tyler Lockett as like a fringe wide receiver one in drafts. Uh, I just think he's a very, very solid. I mean, you're, you're essentially locking yourself into, no pun intended, but locking yourself into, <laughs> uh, you know, a 22 to 25% target share in a Russell Wilson led offense. I mean, sign me up all day, right? Um, but with Shane Waldron, you know, the, the stuff that I've looked at, at least, um, you know, I, I, I don't try to uh, go too hard at looking at offensive coordinator tendencies from the standpoint of how they target wide receiver ones, how they target their tight ends or anything like that, just because a lot of that's personnel driven. Um, what I try to do is just look at what they're doing, how they're functioning in neutral game scripts at a really high level. And Shane Waldron, over the last three years, when he's been uh, with L.A., he called plays sometimes and periodically with Sean McVay. Um, but regardless, they've been, uh, you know, above average in neutral script pass rates. So when games were close, those L.A. teams, those Rams teams uh, were throwing the ball more frequently than the average team, whereas Seattle last year were, were, was doing that. But the two years prior, they were like 31st and 32nd in the league in neutral script pass rate. They weren't doing that. And so I think a lot of people will look at what happened last year with the Seahawks offense and they'll say, you know, Russ was cooking to, to start the year. DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett were top five wide receivers in fantasy. Russell Wilson was the QB one in fantasy. And then everything just hit a wall. Um, and some of that does have to do with uh, the general pass rates that we saw within that Seahawks offense and volume. But a lot of that also had to do with regression. I mean, Russell Wilson through the first half of the season had a 10.2% touchdown rate. That would have broken the record. He would have had the most efficient season in terms of converting to touchdowns that we'd ever seen. But then the second half of the season, you know, regression doesn't mean that you overcorrect. Regression means that you go back to what your your career average is, what the league averages, et cetera. Russell Wilson, instead of going back to like a six, six and a half percent touchdown rate, which is what we generally see from him, second half of the year, he had a 4.6% touchdown rate. That's what really trickled down that entire team and why DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett weren't as valuable as fantasy assets down the stretch versus the volume. I mean, yes, Tyler Lockett, you know, averaged like two fewer targets per game and it wasn't as strong from a volume standpoint, but really what was driving so much of their production early on was touchdowns. So if we see a situation where 
you know, right now I think that that Wilson and Lockett and Metcalf to some degree, but he's going Metcalf at least is going around other really good wide receivers. I think that what we're seeing is that they're being drafted more in like a 25th percentile uh, range for a range of outcome for, for how pass heavy that they're going to be. I mean, they could really be more pass heavy than where their ADP is showing right now. And if that's the case, if they are more pass heavy, I went in on that. I actually looked at this uh, for for a players to target article that I did because I'm into Russell Wilson this year. But Wilson's played just 16 games in his entire career where he's hit 40 pass attempts. Since 2011, that number, that 16 number, ranks 27th highest in football. That's behind Jared Goff. It's behind Blake Bortles. Uh, It's just Russell Wilson has not thrown the ball all that much. But in those games where he's had 40 plus pass attempts, he's averaged 26.4 fantasy points per game. The only player in that split who has had 10 or more games of 40 plus attempts uh, that's been better than Russell Wilson is Patrick Mahomes. That's it. Wow. So, so Russell Wilson, if he does indeed cook a little bit more, I think we're going to see a monster season from him. Uh, I, I like the move. You know, Brian Schottenheimer was not very creative uh, as an offensive coordinator. I think we're going to see more motion and see these guys utilized in, in a more uh, appropriate way. And so I think Russell Wilson could have an absolutely amazing season this year. And I think with Russ Wilson with ADP, it's I'm going to call it seasonal time period arbitrage because we were used to Russell Wilson starting slow and then cooking the last five, six weeks of the year and winning fantasy titles for teams. Last year, it was the opposite. And now because he ended, quote, poorly, that's why people are sort of putting him a little bit further down. As far as Lockett, I agree. 110 targets, 132 targets the last two years, 82 receptions, 100 receptions, 1,000 yards, and oh, by the way, his receiving touchdowns the last three years, 10, 8, and 10. I put this out on Twitter. If you look at the most touchdowns since 2018, Tyreek Hill, 37, Devontae Adams, 36, there's your wide receiver, 1 and 2 in some order. After that, Tyler Lockett is, has 28. He is fifth. He's wide receiver 16. And the guys after them, Ridley and Hopkins, are wide receiver four and five. For some reason, JJ, maybe it's because he's not the prototypical wide receiver in size. Lockett doesn't get the respect. He plays 16 games. He gets a lot of targets and he catches touchdown. Isn't it just that simple? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that I think a lot of people are just burned by the inconsistency. And yes, if you look at it mathematically, if you look at like the coefficient of variation and how these these wide receivers are scoring points, um, uh, which Tyler Lockett absolutely has been more inconsistent than some of the other wide receivers that you're going to find. But, you know, if you look at his peripherals last year down the stretch, they were still not bad. He was still averaging a 22% target share per game. It's just that he was not converting the way that he should have been converting, you know, versus his, his career average, but also, you know, especially versus how he was converting during the front half of the season. So, you know, I think a lot of this just has to do with general variance and the way that he mm-hmm. ended up finishing last season, you know, not giving you many strong performances. Um, but we know the ceiling is there because we've seen that ceiling multiple times. And wide receivers have variants. I remember Mike Evans right. a couple of years ago, two bad games. All of a sudden he plays the Giants. He goes for like 200 yards and three right. and three touchdowns. So there's some baked in variance to wide receivers. For sure. Are you a Peloton person? I think you are. Did COVID help that or are you getting back into it now? No, I bought it. I got it during uh, the pandemic, Smart. actually. I got it Smart. Got it in November of 2020. Um, and I just needed like, a change of exercise for for health purposes and whatnot. And uh, I ended up, uh, I'm in love with, I'm literally in love with it. I mean, I do it four or five times a week. Uh, I'm extremely competitive. And so that, that gamifica- gamification within Peloton has really... Uh, gotten me. I mean, I've always been like a decent exerciser, 
Uh, but the, the Peloton has taken that to like another level for me. I, I freaking love it. I think everyone should have one. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And we all have that competitive streak here. So what was your favorite video game growing up? Man, I feel like I'm like, I got like different eras, right? Cause like when I was growing up, it was very much a Sega, uh, yeah. situation yeah. in my house, you know, some, some Nint- first Nintendo, but then Sega. And then when I was playing Sega, I was playing so much like NHL 94, which is yes. like the, oh. the best, the best hockey game of all time. Ever, NHL 94. ever. Yep. Yeah. Eiserman even- and Iser Bard for Detroit for me, for the Red Wings. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Yes. Yeah. This is not even close. Such a good game. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, I went into N64 a little bit, got into like Mario Kart and stuff and Perfect Dark, uh, which is don't at me guys, but, but Perfect Dark is literally a better version of GoldenEye, just so wow. everyone knows, uh, quite literally a better version. And then, you know, once I got into high school and stuff, I started playing Halo when that came out in Halo 2. So that was, those, those is like my, my, my eras of, uh, of gaming right there. Your FanDuel, your JJ Zacharyson. I know you've looked. Week one DFS prices. Have a couple guys that are, that have come out there. Ian Hart has put something out the other day about Travis Etienne against the Texans. That seems pretty good. Any guys, uh, any position that's catching your eye here for week one? Yeah, you know, uh, so FanDuel's salaries, uh, they seem to not be very bullish on rookies. Uh, that That's really the direction that I would go pretty hard with. I mean, Jamar Chase has like a, it's like he's like 5,500 or something like that. He's, he's under 6K. Devontae yeah. Smith is under 6K as well, I believe. Uh, but then Najee Harris is 6,500, uh, which... Oh. We know he's, we know he's about, I mean, he's like lock button, just throw oh, him into every yeah. lineup and he's, you know, he's facing Buffalo. It's fine. You know, maybe there's a negative game script, whatever, but, uh, we know that he's going to be utilized as a pass catcher in that offense. Um, you know, we know that he's going to be a bell cow in that offense. So go after those rookies. And I think Najee Harris, especially could, could be a really good value in week one. I've incorporated this next question from Pete Aquaviva, who's a, a faithful listener. He says to ask the experts, look, you have some guys who are your guys that you're locked into this year. What he feels he doesn't hear enough on podcasts is provide the argument why you could be wrong. So look, I had Josh Larkey on. He loves DeAndre Swift. He said, here is the scenario where I'm wrong on DeAndre Swift. So I'm curious, JJ, pick a guy, one of the guys that you're, you're sort of putting your flag for, flag plank guy, and say, listen, if I'm wrong, this is why it's going to be. Look, I feel like I could do this with every single guy I like. I mean, if you, if you can't do it, then I think that you're a little bit blind to to what these range of outcomes are for these players because a lot of times the guys that we're flag planning for, you know, they're not the 101s in draft. But even Christian McCaffrey you can make the argument for in some way. Uh, not that it would be as easy, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just go back to Jerry Judy, uh, you know, the guy who we were talking about earlier um, where I said a lot of positive things about him. I talked about all the criteria that he meets uh, to be a breakout wide receiver. But I do think, you know, the way that I sort of comp Judy is I, I think he's this year's Deontay Johnson. Um, okay. and, you know, similar similar type of player, good route runners, can get that separation at the line like uh, uh, the way that they do. Um, but my, my fear uh, with Judy and why I think it's reasonable to not be, you know, so high on him uh, is that obviously the quarterback situation is the quarterback situation. I'm not that concerned with that necessarily. I'm more concerned with the passing volume in that offense. You know, Jer- uh, Deontay Johnson last year played on a Pittsburgh team that was one of the most pass heavy in the league. And so a, a huge reason that he was able to gobble up the the volume that he gobbled up was not just because they essentially replaced their run game with Deontay Johnson's slants, but it was also because uh, they were throwing the ball a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do have that fear a little bit with Jerry Judy and this Denver passing attack, especially because like Pittsburgh, uh, Denver has a really good defense. Denver's secondary is probably the best in the league entering the, yes. entering the season. And so, yeah. you know, I, I think that, that there's, 
there's that sort of uh, iffiness around Jerry Judy. But, you know, at the wide receiver position, I generally am not, unless it's an extreme situation like Baltimore or something like that, I'm generally not going to just fade a guy or be that concerned about that situation because wide receivers generally will, will just win out. Yeah, Denver defense, Sertan had the pick six already. And I'm starting to get the feeling, JJ, it's going to be Drew Locke. We know what yeah. Teddy Bridgewater is, but of course the big bomb that KJ Hamler, you know, I made a joke, is, is this Josh Allen light? And I just ducked. But, uh, you know, I think they want it to be him. So I think he's going to get a shot. They get off to a good start with a good defense and he can control those interceptions. I'm pretty high on Denver this year. Yeah, I, I think that the Denver defense is is awesome. And if Drew Locke is even remotely, uh, you know, what he what I mean, look at the weapons around him, obviously. Um, and if Drew Locke is is an average quarterback just in terms of skill, uh, I think that he could be an above average player in general, just given the environment that he's in. And they, they could be sneaky. They're not they're not a bad team. It just is an unfortunate that they're in the division that they're in. I'm pushing hard for a fantasy football fear factor or survivor just to take this industry to the next level, get all the guys together and do something like that. But if you went on Fear Factor, what's the one thing that JJ would say, you know what, I don't, I don't think I'm doing that? You know, I, I thought about this and I'm just going to go with an answer that might be a little embarrassing and weird, uh, but I hate, hate styrofoam. I okay. hate That's styrofoam. Fair. And I, it's weird because I've my entire life, you know, whenever you get like like boxes and, and it's all packed up really tightly and you got to like pull the styrofoam out of the box and it's really tight and that sound that it makes and like the texture yes, of it and stuff. Yes, yes. My entire life, it just made me cringe like I've never cringed to, yes. to anything before. And it makes me feel awful on the inside. And my entire life, I would sit, tell this to people and stuff. And they're like, what? This one of the strangest things I've ever heard. It's so weird. And then finally, I found an article online like two years ago where this is like a real thing. Like there are people who have like styrofoam phobia and I'm one of those people. Do not let me sit in a room or like in a pile of styrofoam because I would go absolutely nuts. I have no problem with that. Growing up, we used to get the ice pops at the pool and I hated the feeling of the wood popsicle when oh, I got I, that. I, yeah, I feel it that. It just yep. freaks me out. So like for <laughs> yeah. some reason, I just bite off the sides and then my friends would, why are you throwing that? I said, I can't get down to the wood. So <laughs> totally get the styrofoam thing because the woody sound, as we call it, I'm out on that. Very good one. You talked about ambiguous backfields. I just want to get your thoughts on some. We talked about Jacksonville, so we can skip over that. Travis Etienne. How about Atlanta? Mike Davis could be an absolute slam value as a pass catching running back on a team that should have a lot of negative game script with limited competition, but it's still Mike Davis. Where are you at on Atlanta? Yeah, man, he's a, he's tough for me to fade, but I am fading him more than drafting him this year. And, and it's really more of a process oriented thing above all else where I don't want to just simply buy a situation with players. I want to buy the player himself as well whenever I'm drafting them. And with Mike Davis, you're talking about a 28 year old journeyman running back who who met his career high and hit his career high last year in rush attempts. And yeah, he was utilized well as a, as a pass catcher. And I think he is a good pass catcher. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of a lot of these like running back dead zone type running backs end up being in the dead zone in hindsight for a reason. And a lot of times that reason is that we're over projecting that situation, uh, whether that's Miles Gaskin this year, whether that's uh, Mike Davis this year, those players where there, there could be more of a committee than we're letting on in our projections. But look, I'll say this, Mike Davis in a projections system of some sort is going to come out looking pretty good. Uh, it's very hard for him not to when you look at that depth chart and you see the running backs that are on that depth chart. The one thing that's scaring me a little bit is that we are going to see cuts, teams cutting running backs at some point over the next couple of weeks. And 
I feel like this is being overlooked and not talked about enough, but some of those cuts, there's always a surprise running back or two or player or two that gets cut from these teams, some veteran that's capable. Um, and, and I think that Atlanta is going to be the first team to, to get that running back on the phone and, and get them get them uh, in their backfield. And so I think you can run into that issue as well. And I know a lot of people are going to be like, oh, if, if that running back gets cut, then obviously he's not very good. So he's not going to be that big uh, of an issue for Mike Davis. But I would argue that I don't know if, I mean, are we sure that Mike Davis is just this incredible talent that absolutely needs to be on the field? Um, I just think there's a lot of fragility to players like him. And so because of that, I'm out. And look, if I miss on Mike Davis, I miss on Mike Davis. I think that process is going to allow me to be correct more than incorrect in the long run. And listen, we're one year away from, as a Rojo truther, seeing Leonard Fournette flash across the screen. And listen, he was rumored to be cut. But once he went to Tampa Bay, he had a pretty decent year, especially late in the year. So just because they're cut does not mean they cannot be fantasy relevant. You mentioned Miami. Just want to get your thoughts quick. Certainly, they're starting to reveal their poker hand. And it appears like Miles Gaskin may not be the lead guy there. Or at at worst, it's going to be a committee. Salvin Ahmed is still hanging around. I, I take it you're avoiding Gaskin. Yeah, you know, I've I've gotten him at times because I do think that he has an intriguing ceiling given what we saw last year when he was healthy. Uh, but my my and I think that he's actually a pretty good player. Like I think that yes. his prospect profile was really good. Um, you know, he doesn't have the ideal size necessarily, and I don't say that from the standpoint of how I look at running backs. You know, I don't care if a guy's two hundred five pounds. That doesn't that doesn't bother me. But it bothers teams, and I you know what we've seen historically. Um, teams care about that size and they say to themselves, number one, you know, he can't be, he can't be a goal line back or number two, he can't be an every down back. And so they go out and they get a guy like Malcolm Brown, who's bigger bodied and can be that, that short yardage guy. And that, that was the concern all off season for me with miles Gaskin is them using Malcolm Brown as like the goal line guy. Right. But they use Malcolm Brown a lot more than that in that preseason game. And there's a lot of talk around them utilizing Malcolm Brown a lot more. That's, that's scary. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that you should be a little bit worried about, uh, Miles Gaskin being a true workhorse. The other thing too, you know, a lot of people will say don't pay attention to draft capital with these running backs and uh, and whatnot, or or you know don't don't overstate the draft capital piece, especially once they've been in the league for a year or two. But there's not a heavy investment in Miles Gaskin at all, and so and this is a completely you know it's just there, there's no reason to 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 look at this Dolphins team and say that. They, they spent this first or second round pick on him and they are going to try to be right about this, right? Uh, it just doesn't matter enough. Um, and so, you know, I, and then the other thing too is last year, whenever Ahmed did get on the field, when Miles Gaston was banged up, he performed too. Yes, and so I, I think that we could also look at that and say, Maybe it wasn't all Gaskin. Maybe it wasn't all a talent thing. And maybe this is a decent enough situation where they could have a committee. And, you know, this isn't just like Miles Gaskin is really, really good. And he's so much better than everyone else. He has to be on the field. So I'm definitely not into Gaskin. Haven't really been into him this offseason. Had him as a sell on a, on a dynasty podcast I did back in January and February. Um, but, you know, I will say if, if, if the discount gets to, to be pretty significant, I'm cool with going after him as more of like a zero RB back because he was in the dead zone for a little while. And now if he's going to be more of a zero RB type guy, then it's a lot easier to to get a guy like that. I guess because I've done anchor RB for a lot of my drafts, I don't have one specific strategy. I sort of let it come to me, but I have gone with anchor RB a lot yeah. that I have really zeroed in on Damian Harris as my second running back. You know, he didn't catch passes last year, but he did have 22 receptions at Alabama you know, a limited target share, 5.3, but they had a lot of backs they rotated in there as well. I think he can do some things. 
Damian Harris, Sony Michelle still there. We saw Monday Stevenson rip off the big run, but I don't think he's going to be relevant right away. I know it's New England. You always take the cheapest back, but Damian Harris, you warming to him? I'm warming to him enough. The, the thing is, is that he, the pass catching is still a concern for me. I think that you can look at his, where, where he's being drafted and I'm not going to fault anyone for drafting him there at all. You know, not only that, but he fits some of the criteria that I look for. Like he's the RB one being drafted from his team. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing though, is the pass catching side. Uh, if they, if they didn't re-sign James White, Good point. I would be very bullish on Damian Harris. And I know that Everyone would be more bullish on Damian Harris. I totally get it. And that's why the discount is there because James White is there. Um, but I I just, you know, just seeing what James White has done. I mean, he's the only running back over the last like six years to have 50 plus targets every single season. And so um, I, I think that's the main concern I have for Harris. Is he a bad RB2 if you're going anchor RB? Absolutely not. I think it's fine. Like you're going to still get production. I just don't know if Harris is going to be that league winner that you would want in those middle rounds. And last one, I just find myself looking around in these best ball drafts and I'm looking for an RB3 or an RB4 and I go, yeah, Tevin Coleman's still there. It's the same reaction I have in all these drafts. Michael Carter's still an issue. Ty Johnson, Tevin Coleman, I know, can he stay healthy? But he probably is the lead guy week one. Any interest there? You think this is too muddled? Well, I mean, look, I've thrown darts at Tevin Coleman too. Uh, I I think that he's a good, good value just because he's so, so late in drafts and people are just ignoring him at this point. Um, You know, I don't mind Michael Carter though either. I don't mind throwing darts at at these ambiguous backfields because that's generally where we see players emerge and running backs emerge. And so, you know, Michael Carter is interesting though too, because like I said before, you know, he's the RB1 on his team by ADP. He's a pass catcher, which is something that you always need to be looking for. Um, and, and I think that it's fine going after him too, because the opportunity cost really isn't that significant. You know, like once you get into that Michael Carter range, there aren't that many wide receivers at that point that, you know, you absolutely need to get. Um, and so uh, I, I don't mind going after either of those guys and just hoping that one of them emerges a little bit. Tevin Coleman being one. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's going so late in drafts that, you know, he's, I mean, it's guaranteed volume that late, especially in a best ball format where you don't have to choose when those big games or potential big games would come. In your dynasty rookie drafts, is there a player round three or later that you're very high on either for this year or just down the line, sort of one of your guys in your dynasty rookie drafts? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I'll say this. I didn't like anyone really after like the middle of the second round, which is the case for a lot of people this year. Um, and I, you know, my my models didn't like many guys. You know, I, it really stopped at like Diami Brown-ish. You know, I, I really like yep. Diami Brown. I think that he could be a really good player. Yes. Yep. Um, and so I, I think he's been undervalued, but he hasn't necessarily been, you know, he didn't get into that third round unless you were in like a super flex format. One guy I'm warming up to who did not score well in my model did not d- doesn't look great on paper uh aside from size and opportunity uh is Josh Palmer um yes, who the charge you know, sure yeah yeah i mean it, it's just one of those situations where like i don't pretend like i have all the answers with my evaluation and how i view these guys and what my model says and so even though palmer didn't look great in that model and even though you know my eyebrows raised whenever they they made that selection uh you know in the draft um you know if they like him and if they're seeing good things from him that's that's cool. Uh, and it's not like that depth chart is that deep. Um, and it's not like that depth chart. I mean, would anyone be shocked if at the end of the season, Josh Palmer jumped ahead of Mike Williams? That's it. In, on yep. the depth chart, right? Like, I, I don't think that that's a shocking revelation that, that we, not only that, Mike Williams obviously hasn't been able to stay healthy, but it wouldn't be a surprise to see something like that happen. He's got the right size. He's getting a lot of hype out of camp. People, people seem to like him a lot. 
Um, and just, you know, there are some traits that he had that, that were fine. Uh, but his overall like production profile, which is what I look at most was not super, super strong, but sometimes you can just buy into that hype a little bit, buy into the situation a little bit, um, and, and, and buy into the draft capital too, a little bit. And you'll find guys who, you know, were better than what your model says. Terry McLaurin's a perfect example of that. Um, and so maybe that happens with Josh Palmer, considering the cost is basically nothing and very, very little. Um, I think that he's, he's worth targeting and looking at. It's an excellent call. Deame Brown, you know, Curtis Samuel got hurt a little bit in preseason. We could see a way that he could absolutely go up that depth chart with Josh Palmer. Yes, the metrics don't jump off the page here. Player profiler, 4.57, 40-yard dash. He's 6'1", 210, decent size. Third round, he has draft capital. But you're right. Mike Williams has not been a 70, 80 reception guy. It would not shock me. He gets hurt doing one of those bomb down the sideline, miraculous catches. And then Palmer comes in in a pass-heavy offense, no Hunter Henry this year. Yes, it's Jared Cook. Yes, we want Donald Parnham to, to break out. I understand that. That's a great call. There's a path, right, JJ, for Palmer right. to be relevant. Yes. Yeah, there, there's a path. And of course, I like Mike Williams more. Of course, I, you know, I love Donald Parham as a late round dart. I feel like no one is talking about Parham, even though uh, he's running with the ones often. He's like the tight end 33 in drafts right now because people are afraid of Jared Cook. But again, you have to think about, would you be surprised if X, Y, and Z happened? Like even the Diami Brown example it's not like Curtis Samuel is the stud wide receiver. I think Curtis Samuel is good, but would it be shocking if Deami Brown is just a better player than Curtis Samuel? Of course not. And so I think you have to be open-minded about that with, with some of these rookies. Excellent job there, JJ. One more question, then we'll get you out of here. Amazing work as always. I want the bold prediction. You're great at these. Give me something. I remember Rich Rebar last year said, we're going to have a 16-game season. And he was right. That was his bold prediction. (laughs) What do you have this year? Bold prediction here for the 2021 season. Yeah, so I have a bold predictions article that I drop every year. That one's actually dropping, I think, uh, f- tomorrow, maybe, oh, maybe early next week. So that, but this is one of them. So here's a little sneak peek. Little sneak peek. Justin Fields will be the best fantasy quarterback this year with the first name Justin. Oh, that's a big one over yeah, Justin like Herbert. That's yeah. a big one. Wow. Yeah. I understand the argument with Dalton, but JJ, I don't think Andy Dalton, this is not an Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes situation. Right. Andy Dalton is not going to hold him off long enough and their job, Nagy and Pace is on the line. How loud will the calls be for Justin Fields if Dalton throws two picks in the first half? Exactly. Everyone makes the the comparison to Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes, but like Alex Smith was playing at like a Pro Bowl level uh, when you know when they when they didn't put Patrick Mahomes in. Not only because of the environment. I mean, he's playing with Andy Reid. It's a great offensive mind. It's great weapons. So like that all makes sense. We can't expect that to happen with Andy Dalton. I mean, I I don't doubt that they want to use Andy Dalton the first couple of weeks of the season. But I think of all the rookie quarterbacks. Uh, you know, aside from uh, basically of of Justin Fields, Trey Lance, and Mac Jones, I'm most confident that Justin Fields is going to start early on uh, or earliest of those three. Um, you know, partially because uh, if you look at San Francisco, their schedule to start the year is pretty soft, so it wouldn't be surprising if they just say, "Ah, oh, Jimmy, just go in there, uh, do your thing, and he'll he'll, he'll play well enough, and then uh, that'll hold off Trey Lance a little bit." But I just, you know, like you said, their their jobs are on the line there in Chicago. Uh, it just makes sense to to throw Fields on the field and just see see what he can do. And he definitely showed up in that first preseason game. JJ Zacharyson, editor in chief at FanDuel, number fire, late round podcast, have to listen. Live in the stream, tremendous job. He's a dad. He's a fantasy football expert. Great guy as well. Follow him on Twitter at late round QB. JJ, it is a pleasure. Great information as always. Can't thank you enough. 
Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rotoviz Radio. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes under the Fantasy Football Mailbag, a Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email, rotovizradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think, so follow us on Twitter at rotovizradio and at Randall Rant. Make sure you tell a friend, and don't forget to sign up for a 10% discount on our podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. It's a no-brainer, folks. Thanks for tuning in.